Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And this episode is brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am joined as usual by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigga Morora. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. And also, please welcome Angela Carter, a genderless being of universal light in a malfunctioning meat suit. Angela is a social justice and health justice advocate. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. And also, please welcome David Bronner. David Bronner is the Cosmic Engagement Officer, the CEO of Dr. Bronner's, the top-selling natural brand of soaps, soaps in North America, also on the board of MAPS, and has dedicated his life to ending the drug war and integrating psychedelic medicines as fast as possible. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. First up, we're going to play uh, a game about some recent cannabis and psychedelics news And we're also, for our second segment, we'll be discussing a Vice article about a store in Canada that is, well, a drugstore and giving new definition to what a drugstore is. Um, And third, we'll discuss a peer-reviewed article on the bioethics of psychedelics regarding research and treatment in marginalized communities, such as those with mental health issues. Okay, we'll be right back in 30 seconds with today's game. And we're back. Welcome to today's game. And for the first part of our game, we're going to play a little fill-in-the-blank game about cultural idioms and puns um, or cannabis sayings. Um, and, and don't worry about getting it wrong or right. Just remember, two wrongs don't make a right, but making two lefts will take you to the dispensary by my house. <laughs> so uh, basically, for this segment, you must complete the missing word or words in the weed pun. So if it was blank you later, you would be, ah... TH, see you later. Or if it was, this should be a blank decision, uh, then you would try and figure out where, what could be blank decision. Ah, this is a joint decision. There you go. So off to the races. Do I have any volunteers to take on the first punt? This is worth a lot of points. Just letting you know. I'll, I'll give it a try. I'm not great with puns all the time, but I'm willing to step in. Our first pun for Dr. Nigamarora. If marijuana puns are a blank... I'll see you all. Inhale. If marijuana puns are a blank, I'll see you all. Inhale. Let me know if you need a hint for that one. I'm. I'm gonna take. I'm. I. I kind of am getting it already, but I'm kind of not. But I'll take. The, I'll take the hint. Let me try. The Ten Commandments. If marijuana puns are a blank, I'll see you all. Inhale. It is a play on words. The inhale part. I get the inhale part. Um, I feel like I can't tell if Angela knows more or less yeah, than me here. I need to drink a lot of coffee here. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, there are seven deadly of them. Oh, oh, okay. So say it one more time. I might get if it. If marijuana puns are a sin, oh, I'll see you all oh, in that's, here. And I just after said you it. Said the, <laughs> after you said the seven, I was okay, okay, okay. I think, I think it's getting warmed up. Let's hear the next all one. All right. Here's the next one. Uh, Let's make like a hippie and blank this blank. Let's make like a hippie and blank this blank. Ch- change these laws. Not bad. Not bad. All right. How about um, this? End this. End this war. <laughs> Those all work, actually. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Um, create undue cause for criminalization of psychedelics. So this is an this is an old saying, but it's a. Uh, I'll I, give a one <laughs> clue. The rails. Let's make like a hippie and blow this blank join oh hey <laughs> david comes in with i'll give you 50 points for that one just because you you got one right that's excellent all right well done well done La- last one last one and then we move on to the news headlines blank my lips and i'll give you a hint if you're trying to get something across to someone you would say blank my lips it is a pun on this saying when it comes to you know much like a book what do you do with the book peruse scan (laughs) my mother is the queen of puns but i am awful at it (laughs) 
Return return it to the library. Not bad. Um, that's good. Those are all the things that you do with a book when you're after done doing this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see the re- no. I get it. You read a book. I mean, oh. I've, been, I've been reading a lot of books. Yeah, you but you, I don't read, you read. I, you, <laughs> what about lips? How are you with lips? <laughs> yeah, I I do some I do some lip reading. Um, when uh, when mics don't work on sure. Zoom. All right, but. I didn't understand the relation to the to the psychedelics thing. All right. Well, the the correct answer we were looking for was weed. Yes, weed. Uh, my lips. Aha, aha. Jayhan, will you just read? Will you just say the three of them so we can just All like right. feel them now that we now so that the, I've like I, butchered the I, game by not being good at what puns. I was looking for was the first one. If marijuana puns are a sin, I'll see you all in hell. The second one, <laughs> let's make like a hippie and blow this joint. And of course, the third pun, weed my lips, which is what I say when I try to get points across to people in the hemp industry. All right. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll be on our way to segment two. David Bronner's in the lead with uh, with the layup on that. Um, 50 trillion points. Yes. Yes. 50 trillion. Let me put an exponential number there. Um, so the next one we're going to go. Hopefully, you guys will. I know you don't you don't stay up on your puns, but I know a lot of you stay up on your news. So the first question um, I'm going to throw out there uh, is about what's happening in Pennsylvania. So bipartisan Pennsylvania senators have teamed up on a new legalization bill for what? And I feel like there's a 50-50 chance for this one. But bipartisan Pennsylvania senators have teamed up on a new legalization bill uh, for what? Mushrooms. Close. That... (laughs) They have not teamed up on that yet. (laughs) I wish. Is it cannabis? Ding, ding. Yes, Angela. They have teamed up finally in Pennsylvania. They said, well, if it's good enough for New Jersey, New York, and every other state surrounding us, it might work for a huge agricultural state like Pennsylvania. And yes, David, there is um, some legislation, some natural products research bills and stuff like that that have been moving quietly in Pennsylvania as well. very good. So again, I'll give another fifty trillion points there for seg. It's isn't Pennsylvania like the largest uh, cultivator of edible mushrooms yeah. indoors? Yeah, uh, or they like that? one of the one of the largest things. Like sixty percent of the U.S.'s own mushrooms mm. are grown in in Pennsylvania. They also gr- gr- may produce a lot of eggs for the country too. Eggs and mushrooms mm. that go great together. Oh, it's only it's only a matter of time, All right? For our next headline, second one, we're in the home stretch here. Twitter has updated its marijuana ad policies again, allowing businesses to feature what type of cannabis products in promoted tweets. And I will give you a hint. You cannot put any naked pictures of female plant parts. <laughs> <laughs> so only only uh, C, only CD, only CD plants. Um but- um, so Twitter has updated its marijuana policy ads again, allowing what type of cannabis products in promoted tweets. Again, the hint is no pictures of naked products. Hemp seed fiber. You know, that's uh, probably it's, it's close, CBD. but they want them to be a certain way, a certain way they want oh, pa- packaged packaged products. Yes, Dr. Mm. Aurora gets the Mm. the clean sweep there. Yes, Twitter is allowing you to show packaged. (laughs) Uh, What's in the mystery box? We can't show you, but you sure will like Mm. it. Um, So Mm. yes, Twitter has updated its marijuana policy ads. You can now show packaged marijuana products, no naked female parts of the plant, such as the flowers or things like that. If it's wrapped in clear plastic, can you show it? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Angie's got to Angie's got to go around for that one. I'm always looking for an angle. Twitter, you need to hire Angela as an advisor because clearly there are loopholes to this. Um. <laughs> but I think it's like kind of awful, right? Because there's there's a lot of waste in the cannabis industry with the packaging. You know, you go and you buy a, a pre roll and it's got plastic and more plastic yeah. and cardboard and it's it's um so that's, that's kind of not only actually, is do your cannabis products have to be triple packaged but you also have to complete a hedge maze to get to the counter to buy them so <laughs> <laughs> all right and that's why and that's why nobody goes to this all right our, our last one it comes from the dea um and the dea is being sued by a former agent who was wrongfully terminated over what and i'll give you a hint 
the use of something. Medical uh, cannabis. Very close. Oh, you, you know what? If no one else has a guess, you you will win for that. But he claims, uh, you know, it was overuse of something. Oh, uh, C- uh, CBD arthritis cream. Uh, I don't know if it was cream, but uh, but we were. Okay, I'm gonna yeah, we'll, say, we'll, wow, 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 Angela. Do you have a guess? Do you think they're completely off the 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 cannabis base here, or do you think that sounds about right? DEA I'm, agent suing the DEA. I'm wondering if it is something CBD related, cannabis, but not illegal cannabis. Just something that well, is widely I'll, available, but okay, I'll I give know, you all sure. five billion points each for <laughs> for this one. Because um, according to Marijuana Moment, a former drug enforcement DEA officer is taking the agency to court after being fired for testing positive for THC after using legal hemp-derived CBD uh, that he took for pain relief. Um, he mm. actually, um, uh, his name is Anthony Armour and was 15 years as a special agent. And I guess this just shows you that good hemp is hard to find, especially the type that doesn't get you fired. All right. <laughs> just it's unfortunate it's a really sensitive test <laughs> sensitive tests over at the DEA. all right and uh so. so our last one i have three stories two are fake and one is real and these are myths from the last year about drugs drug headlines i'm going to share them there are, there are three one number one you just you guys have to f- figure out which one is real right guess the real story from the last year or so here Drug dealers are selling woke coke. Are um, you know are cocaine dealers selling ethically sourced cocaine? Um, New Jersey women that eat poppy seeds test positive for drugs, and fireworks being let off to signal drug drop off. So the three are again: drug dealers selling woke coke. Number one, New Jersey women eat poppy seeds test positive for drugs, and fireworks are being let off to signal drug drop-offs. Now, if you just want to pick a different one, that's fine. You can wager all your points. You could wager none of your points. But well, only one is true. Only yeah, one is true. seems like the most realistic. I mean, it's funny. In IMC Fun, we're actually working on, like we're, we're beginning to have dialogue with indigenous um, cultivators of coca for non-cocaine coca products and you know that one day will be uh, hopefully reality but i'd be very surprised if that's happening yet yeah i mean they used to sell uh the decoconized coca tea i mean i don't know if they used to maybe they still do and they used to too but in the in the mission district in san francisco you could get coca tea and it was like for stomachs aches and stuff it didn't like cause impairment or anything like that but it was it it was it has a lot of interesting uses and i think coca-cola still gets you know tons of coca leaf to mm-hmm. to f- formulate their product, so um, you know, come, they're probably the largest importer of coca leaf. <laughs> um, I think uh, I think someone saying this is woke coke or this is you know ethically sourced X or Y. I think yeah, people say anything to sell stuff. So I think people are saying it, but is it actually as David pointed out? Is it actually like a fully Verified, ethical supply chain? Trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it up to the the Dr. Bronner standard right? <laughs> for? Um, that's that seems a I little. I mean, that it's seems not like, like illicit drug dealers would just assume all their clients are stupid and uninformed, gullible <laughs> weirdos, right? They they wouldn't like try to pass a fast one past them, right? <laughs> well, there's it's a spectrum, you know. You can't you can't you can't put it all on the consumer. But anyways, I'm gonna say I'm gonna agree with David. I uh, I I always. Um, hear that like see that Seinfeld episode you know the guys I'm talking about the Seinfeld episode I think George like fails the test for eating poppy seed bagels I think it was Eileen yeah 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna agree I'm gonna wager all my points uh on the poppy seed one I would agree with that I've had patients test positive (laughs) all right so no one no one thinks fireworks are being let off to signal drug drop-offs you don't think Mob families are like, oh, we can't use like text encryption anymore. Sales are down. Let's let's go out with a bang. Fire some mortar shells in the sky. That'll that'll be subtle. Um, so no, innovative. Fireworks are completely untraceable, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> except the huge lines they make in the sky. All right. 
So the first one, let's just start there. Drug dealers, I think all the votes are in. So drug dealers are selling woke coke. So again, um, last year it was alleged, um, as it was in the previous year, uh, that people are buying ethically sourced cocaine from dealers that the, like they might buy fair trade coffee in order to get you know buzzed guilt free. Um, unfortunately, um, woke coke does not exist right now. Um, under prohibition, mm-hmm. it's basically dominated by violent cartels right now. Um, and even so, again, this invented story went viral. And so that yeah, this is a completely mm-hmm. made up myth. There, there are certainly groups working to ethically regulate substances that alter consciousness, but this is indeed not true. So let's go to the the fireworks one because I love this one. This was in um, England. Um, a conservative MP in West Yorkshire told the House of Commons that um, the fireworks going off in his jurisdiction were to signal drug drop-offs going on, much like throwing tennis shoes uh, over a telephone wire and, and that signaling where where to deal drugs. Um, you know, so you just fire mortar shells and have a series of explosions and people come running toward the explosion, I guess, is the idea. Like, we don't want to attract attention to ourselves. Let's just fire a rocket in the air. Yeah, um, like spotlights. So yeah. that turned out to be completely uh, false. Um, it was just a way to ban fireworks before Guy Fox Day. So mm. that was the only reason why they these MPs said that. Um, so that means that New Jersey women that eat poppy seeds test positive for drugs. This is a true story, and it still is affecting people to this day. Two pregnant women at two separate hospitals in New Jersey both suffered the real-life repercussions of eating poppy seeds um, and then tested positive for drugs. Um, well, this is a really funny Seinfeld episode, it isn't so funny in real life. And they are, again, dealing with legal issues from these hospital tests that were administered shortly after birth showing the trace amounts of poppy seed remnants in their fluids. So I've got a story on this actually. So like our big um, foundational fight with DEA over uh, hemp seed oil and hemp seed derivatives, um, you know, after nine 11, you know, DOJ went nuts after medical marijuana dispensaries and hemp tried to shut down the hemp industry. So all of a sudden all our hemp food products and, you know, hemp soaps, everything was illegal. And we were given a couple months to dispose of inventory before we were considered drug kingpins with, you know, tons of, actually they were interpreting it as, even though marijuana exempts hemp, they were saying that the trace THC in the hemp seed oil itself re-controlled it as THC. So technically we were having like, you know, and it was insane. It would be like multiple lifetimes. But we ultimately prevailed in court over the poppy seed by basically showing it was completely arbitrary and capricious that the that that the government actually raised drug test thresholds for poppy seed for the for opiate residues, and then on the on the hemp side, we'd actually solve the problem with good GMP, good manufacturing pr- protocols, and had gotten the trace residues of, of resin down to the point they wouldn't trigger drug tests on THC. Um, in, in yeah, so that was ultimately how we prevailed in the Ninth Circuit, and and BDEA was the first you know big defeat. Yeah, yeah, I still remember some of the imagery around that with you uh, locking yourself in a cage out in front of the White House to make hemp soap. Like that was like mm-hmm. pretty. I think though that some of that imagery was really um, inspiring for for advocates in the space. So thank you. That's my theatrical trailer. Yeah, (laughs) Excellent. All right, listener, that's all we have time for segment one. Uh, And it amazingly ended in a three-way tie. Everyone maxing out with 100 billion points. We've triple crown winners. Wow. Never happened before. Unified champions on the game segment. All right. We'll be right back in 30 seconds with segment two. Hi, this is Melissa Etheridge. I founded the Etheridge Foundation to support research into effective nature-based treatments for opioid use disorder. Learn more and join our movement at etheridgefoundation.org. Now. 
Now it's time to peruse and review the popular literature exploring business and politics. Welcome to the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. Uh, I am Dr. J.N. Marcoux, joined here with Nick Marora, Angela Carter, and David Bronner, and today we'll be discussing a bit of a controversial article that has been making waves. Uh, a store selling heroin, meth, and cocaine just opened in Canada as published by Vice. It's a fascinating article where Vice explores the emergence of the store in Canada that was openly selling. We're not sure if it's still open after he was arrested recently. Um, sells illicit drugs such as heroin, methamphetamine, and cocaine. The pictures, you can see the price board and the purchasing limits. And I think the concept of such a store challenges traditional drug policies, raises numerous and ethical and legal questions, also redefines a drugstore. Hey, I'm going to the drugstore. Do you want anything? Um, <laughs> but today we'll be developing into those complexities surrounding the issue, examining these implications and various perspectives of drug regulation and harm. You know, there's a lot of questions I have, like, how does the store fit into the broader landscape of drug policy? What are arguments for and against such an establishment? Um, how does it intersect with like the public health and criminal justice and harm reduction efforts? And again, I think what can we learn about this to further improve, um, you know, drug policy reform? So buckle up, listener, and get ready to dive into the article entitled "A Store Selling Heroin, Meth, and Cocaine Just Opened in Canada on How to Launch an Industry." Let's dive in and talk about some drug policy. Um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll kick it to one of the newest persons to join us. You know, Angela, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. As a social advocate and a health advocate, um, what jumps to mind um, about this article? Are you like, is the product pure? Or, you know, how do they screen people? Or, you know, what? I mean, there's so many things that come to mind. I didn't know if there was something that jumped out at you. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I think about is, I mean, this this person, uh, I believe his name was Jerry Martin, uh, opened the store because he wants to offer a safe supply that is not adulterated, does not have fentanyl, is not mixed. So his his goal really is harm reduction with with this store opening, and you know it's a little it's a little wild west for sure. And now we have seen that he was arrested for for doing this, but it's an innovative idea for reducing the potential for drug overdose and death from a substance you weren't aware of um, and engagement in some discussion around safety. Um, you know, he provides information about how to use in a way that's least likely to harm you. And I, I really, I appreciate the ethos of his decision to open the store. Uh, people, people use substances. People have always used substances. People will continue. And we have a pretty exponential rate of increase right now in substance use with, with COVID and all the stress that came from that and a variety of other issues that are sort of escalating the trauma in our culture. Uh, people are reaching for coping tools. More and more people are reaching for coping tools. And we have to figure out a way both to keep people safe and also to recognize that people will use substances and it's 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 too idealistic to think that we can just take away all of the supply and people won't find something else i will relate a story from my father who is a therapist um he worked early on in his career in a uh substance use recovery program and um all all of the the residents had beds in the same room sort of dorm style and over time he began noticing that all of their beds got closer and closer and closer to the bathroom and that they were talking about how thirsty they were and how much water they were drinking and kind of competing a little bit um and eventually they figured out because someone drank too much water that they had all decided to overhydrate in an attempt to alter their consciousness. Hmm. They didn't have any other supply to change their mental state. And so they were drinking water 
five, six, seven gallons a day to change their consciousness because it altered their electrolyte balance and, and so on. So people will find a way to change their consciousness if their consciousness is not a happy place to be. And so why not address that? The issue is not that there are drugs in the world that people are going to take. The issue is that people are miserable and getting more so. And we should address the misery directly, perhaps, instead of trying to take away the coping tools that people are accessing. Give them better coping tools, help them find community, help them find connection. All of these things are crucial to it's saving people's lives. It's, it's not a matter of you're going to be a bad person and take drugs. It's a matter of why are you so sad? Why are you so unhappy? What can we do to support you in having a life with resources and all of your needs met so that you can thrive and you don't feel the need to obliterate your consciousness? You know, so mm. I, I appreciate the harm reduction perspective. Yeah. No, I, I think those are beautiful comments, Angela. And, you know, I wonder too, you know, there are definitely, I think, groups of people who will benefit from potentially having a safe source, whether that's, again, just the fentanyl scare that's going on, whether that's um, just knowing what you're putting into your body or maybe putting into your body and having that informed, almost like informed consent. Like, I am I am getting a 5% beer because it said, I know I can trust the label. I'm getting the product that I want and I and I know that it's this product and not doesn't have a bunch of crap in it. And I, I think that's really true. But I wonder... If at a societal level, and, and, and David, I want to go to you uh, next for some comments. But you know, Angela, you make me think at a societal level: Are we even mature enough to handle regulated access to drugs? I mean, I was just reading something the other day about people flipping out because uh, Budweiser didn't have the right gender binary spokesperson, and I was <laughs> like, we can't, we can't even just like you know accept realities um, right now of of spokespeople for legal drugs. How are we going to even deal with access to drugs that have been so restricted? And so I definitely agree with you there that like I, I was definitely hearing like, you know, we this is a step towards getting to the root of the issue, but it's not going to solve the issue itself. But it is it is a step that could potentially have some benefits to public health and drug policy reform. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, you know, David, I'd love to get your perspective as a tireless, you know, warrior against the drug war. And all you've done there and working to integrate psychedelic medicines. When you see a story like this, is it like flash in the pan? Is or is this guy a pioneer? Um, do you think? Do you think we've heard the last of him? Do you think more people will follow in his footsteps? Uh, take that prompt and do whatever you want with it. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I mean, I really appreciated Angie laying out like both the, the merits of safe supply and you know just making sure people know what they're doing and aren't accidentally overdosing or getting fentanyl laced whatever um and but that hand in hand with that like we need to you know ramp up as a society our social services and you know just the the systemic trauma that's racking society and, and so many people are dealing with and that's at the root of addiction and substance use disorders and you know like you know affordable housing schooling food you know just like all, all the things that yeah um, we, we need to be doing already here in 2023, you know, it's just re ridiculous. And, but I mean, even as that's in many ways, pathetic, um, that that shouldn't hold up, um, figuring out a way to deliver safe supplies of drugs. I mean, there's heroin maintenance programs that have shown people who can manage like diabetes, like an insulin, you can, you know, you can like completely rock your life. Um, and, and ideally, I think those safe supply would be, you know, obviously regulated and, you know, age appropriate access. Um, and then that'd be great if they're like tied together with like psychedelic uh, clinics that are, you know, specialized in addiction and, you know, kind of like, you know, when you're ready to, you know, kick your habit that that's just right there. No judgment, you know, come in, drink ayahuasca or ibogaine or you know, whatever. And it's all done in a rational, compassionate way. And, you know, let's not die in the meantime. And when you're ready, you know, and kind of the way we do 
um, you know, not ideally, but with alcohol, you know, we don't, you know, we already tried that experiment. I mean, there's arguably no worse, you know, even heroin, meth and cocaine. I mean, we, we look at alcohol as far as its toll on society and individually and collectively. I mean, we, we went through that exercise of banning it and, and giving it to these cartels and mafia. And that was just a disaster. I mean, you got methanol laced alcohol. I mean, you know, addicts were still accessing alcohol and then stopped that and, and just created a bunch of criminal syndicates. So I think that we just need to deal with reality and take that harm reduction approach and be compassionate and, you know, figure this out and applaud this gentleman for, yeah, for absolutely creating this conversation. And I think, you know, another aspect, David, that you, you touched upon was access to the supply for therapeutic use of one type. And, and, that is a big issue right now because there are therapists who cannot access, say, MDMA for their patient, but a patient could bring it to them and they could work out a thing where they take a drug or a substance under the supervision of a clinician. And this is PBS, I think, showed the first ever uh, MDMA therapy session, like like footage of it, of someone under MDMA with a therapist. And it wasn't like they got, they wrote the DEA, please send us some MDMA you know, it was acquired from the illicit market. And I think that there are these stories of people who want, you know, clinically assisted psychedelic therapy and having a safe source, or, or maybe they want to go down, you know, the Sigmund Freud road. And they they want to get some other substances um, and do that therapy and, and having the, those options with train, you know, where are you going to get the supply from if it's in this, if it's, if it's controlled or in a legal gray zone and things like that. Um, and, and what are you guys are talking about? It makes me think that the biggest risk um, is perhaps to the drugstore owners, um, not necessarily to the general public. That, um, based on what you know, I'm hearing and what we've read, you know, he was wearing a stab-proof vest. You know, like he was more concerned mm. about other elements where he's getting arrested, um, and there isn't a huge fallout. Like drug addiction did not skyrocket while a store was was opened or or ER events or anything like that, but. Um, you know, he he did take some procedures where he wore a stab proof vest, kept minimal amounts on size in case of robbery. But anyway, but here to steal our attention with his insights is Dr. Nigam Aurora. Um, verbalize some of your neuronal activity for us, Nigam. You've been sitting there um, listening to this deep conversation. What are your thoughts? So I have a bunch. Thanks for the broad uh, prompt there because I have a bunch. I'll try to just rattle them off quick. One thing I want to say, a little background, they talked about in the article about this person, uh, Jerry Martin. So he's not just a person who had this idea and thought it was cool to go do this. He had been living on the streets for 30 years in Canada in five and six different cities. Been a, It said he uh, was addicted to alcohol and, and um, using intravenous cocaine at the age of 15. And then he spent the next 30 years on the streets unhoused. So... He didn't. Oh, uh, he also lost uh, multiple family members, including his brother, recently before he went on this mission. So, this isn't some guy just doing this from nothing. Like, he lived this hard, like, super hard. And then his conclusion was that we need to provide a safe supply. So, that I just want to share a little background for the listener if they haven't read the article. Um, also, uh, just some other comments is that. And feel free to refute me on this, but I think there's this thing where uh, governments will say, okay, let's decrim it, whatever it is, some substance or some act. And then really what that does is it takes a burden off of law enforcement. And then when you take the burden off of law enforcement to uh, notice, care, interact, uh, detain, whatever, then all the strings, things that should or could happen downstream, like uh, treatment, community building, rehabilitation, uh, uh, like David was saying, uh, coupling other therapies like promising psychedelics therapies for addiction, all the stuff that happens downstream of authorities noticing, it just goes away because it's like, okay, well we decrimmed it. It's not our problem. And then, so I'm not saying every, every, uh, jurisdiction does this, but I think there are jurisdictions that they kind of tout, oh, we decrimmed it because we're progressive, but it's really uh, it just takes the burden of caring for the people in their society off of them, which saves them a dollar and saves them the time. Um, 
which goes to my last point, which is that uh, in, in Angela, I think you and I were discussing this at a uh, queering psychedelics. If I do recall that really what it comes back to is community in the end. Why do we have unhoused people? Why do we have people experiencing addiction that are so down and out that they live on the street? Why? Like, why is this? And what it comes down to is uh, a lack of community. And however you define that, I think a simple definition of community is that you have a group that cares about each other in the in the good of all. And when people fall down, they get picked up. So I think, um, and I think that goes back to some of what David was saying too, and and some of the. Uh, like notions in the psychedelics community that there can be uh, repairs to some of the ills of capitalism or some of the ills of the modern society. And I mean, it's a long road. There's a lot to fix, but um, wow, there's, there's what my neurons are doing. Jahan. That's what, that's what I got on this one. So wow. thank you. Thank you, Nigam. And I, and I, you know, there's a lot of nuances to the topic of legalizing drugs, especially with saying let's legalize all drugs. It's complex. It's multifaceted. I think there's a lot of nuances to consider. You think about how much can a person purchase? Can they purchase enough to start their own business or just enough for personal use? <laughs> like like how do we how do we manage that and regulate that? Because you know we only live on one earth and there's only you know so much Terra to produce these products and we want to make sure that they they go to places like we don't want to you know you hear stories about like with medical cannabis and adult use when adult use passes you know patients sometimes can't get the products they need so we also i think want to make sure that we keep this you know ethical and, and a fair distribution should the united states continue to consume 90 percent of the world's drug supply or should we you know pass it to the left hand left-sided country you know like that's something to to think about um you know Perspectives on drug policy can vary widely, and I think that depending on what your context is, right, um, there's cultural factors, there's societal values. But as, as we move forward, we have to evaluate the evidence, considering public health and safety and engaging in, I think, informed discussions like this are crucial for you know shaping effective drug policy because this guy opened the store, self-imposed age limits, purchasing limits, all this stuff, including having his own product paid for it to be tested, that had to be mandated in the cannabis industry before people started testing their products. This guy's like, I'm doing it for like six different substances, you know? One other uh, tidbit, Jahan, is that um, that I know he'd said that he got arrested. So this article came out on, I think, May 3rd. And on May 5th, he was arrested. But the the second article says um, he was arrested but he and he's detained, but he's not charged. And this goes back to what I was saying about what's convenient for the jurisdiction. Always oh, making noise. Always oh, trying to make a change. Oh well, let's get him off the street. Let's not charge him. Let's just. And I, yeah. I, I don't really know the truth of what's happening, but I just wanted to like drop that comment in there that it's um something's happening. In terms of harm, potential harm, uh, I just, I just wanted put a little bit of perspective on it in the United States, about 140,000 people die from alcohol related issues a year versus for all other substances. It's a little bit under a hundred thousand people. So all other substances, so heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamines, um, the, the the overall public health risk is greater for people using alcohol. And yet we we don't really hear much. This is a socially acceptable substance. And yet it kills a lot more people than all other substances that are available. And so just that that's just a really important perspective, I think, to hold because there is a lot of political machination that is going on right now with the whole decriminalization movement and and really we're not even looking at the impacts of the substances that are freely available to our culture cigarettes kill so many people for so many reasons alcohol does the same and there are campaigns there are public health campaigns but there's no 
there's no move to remove these substances from the cultural milieu. They're just mm. an integral part. And there's, there's no discussion of that. So the public health impact is greater. The impact on our healthcare system is much larger. The impact on the well-being of our community is much larger from these legal substances. And yet all of the attention is focused on what we consider at this point illegal drugs. Just wanted to put that out there as a, as a piece of perspective as far as the kerfuffle and flusteredness <laughs> that, that is going on around illegal substance use. Yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate that, that that gets lost in, in the fanfare. Well, maybe we will find it in our next segment because we're going to talk about a research article, um, a little bit of a review mini op-ed by some scientists who write about some of the ethical issues that they're very similar to what you mentioned, Angela. So, listener, we're going to just take a short 30-second break. Stay tuned as we get ready to jump to our next segment. We'll be right back with Rapid Fire Science. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. Now it's time for the peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. For this episode, we are going to review an article entitled Barriers and Facilitators to the Equitable Access of Psychedelic Medical Care and Research in Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias, published in the American Journal of Bioethics Neuroscience. Uh, listener, if you want to read this article, just check the show notes for links to the articles and content we've discussed today. So again, as we have discussed earlier in the show, you know the use of psychedelics in medical care has gained increasing attention in recent years, and no a small part in, in efforts from our guests today. Um, but again, they also have the, the psychedelics have potential therapeutic applications in a wide range of mental health disorders. You, you hear talks about depression, anxiety, PTSD. However, several barriers exist that hinder the integration of psychedelics into mainstream medical care. Here, we will discuss the article and some of those key barriers to consider. Um, Again, I know that there's uh, progress being made in various jurisdictions. There's decrim, there's legalization efforts all over the country. Um, there's ongoing research and advocacy efforts aimed at expanding um, regulated availability of psychedelics for medical care. So um, just to kick it off, um, you know, David, I'd love to hear from you about this effort. You know, you've been in the drug war, fighting it a long time, and again, large part of your recent years have been spent towards getting psychedelic psychedelics as medicine ex integrated into society. Um, so when you see these articles about people, scientists writing, okay, well, um, how, how do we get this to the people who need it? And, and what are those ethical barriers, ethical standards? What are just the barriers that we have to overcome to get, say, um, you know, Parkinson's patient to try a psychedelic product that might help them or someone with severe depression or a neurodegenerative disorder. Um, people seem to be touchy about, <laughs> you know, ex giving uh, substances to these groups. And um, I just wanted to, I'm sure you've encountered comments about this. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we live in a travesty of a society as far as healthcare, and and you know, the, a lot of the most traumatized populations who most need this, these medicines are, you know, woefully underinsured. And um, I think, you know, like it maps. I mean, we look at 
you know, this whole FDA approval of MDMA for PTSDs, obviously, you know, crucial in and of itself, but also a tactic to just bust the culture open generally for other modes of access. Um, you know, we're, we're hopeful that, you know, slotting it into the kind of standard medical system will, you know, we can get payers the cover and, and you know, have um, an aggressive patient assistance program to, you know, help out-of-pocket therapy costs and whatnot. But, you know, there, there is going to be, you know, real problems for sure. Um, I really liked Oregon's 109 program, the regulated access program where all adults can access. But, you know, there's a real supply demand problem and market forces are, are we already seeing like ridiculous rates being charged. But Angie, I think you're on the board of Alma. Alma Institute is a really beautiful um, model, you know, focusing on BIPOC and LBGTQ, um, uh, you know, making sure we have culturally appropriate facilitators and getting them scholarships to be able to serve in an accessible way, uh, you know, not just economically, but culturally. And then the group model, like, is so crucial. It's like really bringing group therapy in, which will lower the costs for any one participant. And then as far as building community, which is the antidote often to depression and what we, what Andrew was just talking about in yourself to just, you, you know, just, you know, your the, the mutual camaraderie and support and hopefully lifelong bonds that can come through that and then ultimately just decriminalizing the medicines and allowing self-regulating um, communities and churches to be able to cultivate and provide to their members and um, like Santo Daime and, and, and UDV and, you know, like that. And now a lot, you know, a slew of these entheogenic churches are coming online and hopefully soon mainline denominations will start integrating psychedelic medicines and making that like just part and parcel of their, you know, churches and services and, you know, AA support groups. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that, you know, because some of the first psychedelic studies were, were explored religious and spiritual aspects of health. And I think, you know, I think some of the first times they dosed people like LSD was in a church. Um, and the the placebo group quickly knew who was dosed and who wasn't. Um, um, so I think those set and, you know, David, what you're talking about makes me really think about access, affordability, stigma, perception. And it's it's great to see, you know, religion and spirituality also coming to the table to discuss this. Because this is a place where science and, and religion and spirituality might actually have similar goals in terms of health outcomes and, and you know, just again, overall happiness and well-being. But Angela, you know, I would love to hear more about what David um, alluded to about some of your work in this area, some of the things that you've encountered. I'm sure that public perception and stigma, and I'm sure you've probably encountered some myths out there as well. So um, when you, you know, it's great that researchers are considering this, but, you know, when it comes to barriers to access um, and in a good effective access, the access we want, not, <laughs> you know, I, I would just want to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. So yes, um, as David was saying, I am working with uh, Alma Institute as, as an advisor, um, which Alma Institute is a psilocybin facilitation program here in Oregon under the Measure 109 Amazing. program. And um, I am also very excited to assist with an upcoming research study on MDMA-assisted group therapy for PTSD and minority stress among transgender and gender diverse people. Um, <laughs> the barriers are, are multifold. Um, and really my goal is to figure out the best way to get access to the people who need, need these, these supportive substances the most. If you look at a cross-section of demographics, you see that in people who are impoverished, people who are at or below the poverty line, there is a much higher rate of mental health concerns. There's more depression, there's more anxiety, there's more PTSD. Um, you know, oppression, trauma follows 
lines of marginalization. So you see a much higher rate of depression, anxiety, PTSD, other mental health issues in people who are impoverished, in people who are from communities of color, from people who are a part of the queer and transgender community. They have had a heavier burden of stress put upon them because this culture marginalizes them. And they, they therefore have a higher rate of health issues, both physical and mental, from their experiences. And yes, of course, depression, PTSD, all of those things exist throughout all strata of our culture, but there is a much higher concentration in people who do not have economic access for one reason or another. You know, maybe they, maybe they can't work because they're disabled. Maybe they can't get a job because they're trans and nobody will hire them. Uh, maybe they have had all of their intergenerational wealth taken away from them by the drug war having lost many members of their families to prison. And so these are the folks who need this support the most, this connection, this community, and the ability to transform some of this trauma into healing and resilience and build community around it. But with the current situation, unless you are going to be a part of a research project, and you're recruited for that to access psychedelic medicines. Um, there's really, it's, it's, it's very difficult if as a person on Medicaid with food stamps and like no disposable income to be able to afford a facilitated psilocybin experience. So financial barriers are huge and they should not be. We should have equitable access to these services for everyone, especially the people who need it the most because of the impact of marginalization that's put on them by this culture. Uh, so, you know, how do we do that? How do we, how do we get the, 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 yeah. the support to this community? Well, <laughs> there, there are tons of different ways to possibly engage this. There's, uh, I mean, there's, there's Sage down in the Bay Area. They do a, a lot of work to make low cost options available to people, um, who are below the poverty line for ketamine support and services. They have a pretty good model there. Um, cost trickles downhill. So if you have a very expensive licensure process, which because of the way that 109 was written, um, it, it is required that the program be entirely uh, run on the, the the fees that are are brought in from licensure. The, therefore, the fees have to be higher because there's no state subsidization subsidization of of the program. And so, mm. you know, facilitator license for someone that there is a little bit of a sliding scale situation. If you are uh, economically marginalized, you can get a lower cost on your license, but they're, they're around their $5,000. And that, you know, that has to then be made up for in the business model. Um, mm. And there's also, yeah. you know, the cost of, of licensing service centers and the cost. I mean, there's just all these costs that eventually go out to the consumer and somebody on Medicaid cannot access services right now in a legal way. And so that just, that means there's a whole group of people who don't, don't have access. Um, and there's also the issue of, of therapists. Therapists have to pay for their education. They have to pay for their licensure. Uh, they have to maintain their licensure. And that is also cost prohibitive in a lot of ways. So again, if you are a person from a community that has been historically marginalized by the war on drugs, and you maybe don't have the ability to get funds from family or, uh, you know, to just, there's less money uh, in, in marginalized communities. So that means that people from marginalized communities are less able to become facilitators, to own service centers because of this gap in yeah. 
in access. There's, there's, there's no insurance coverage. You can't, right. you know, it can't be $1 for the person, then they get $500 from someone to reimburse them. And, you know, I, I think that's a very fascinating point and a very important thing to think about is marginalized communities have, you know, the higher rates of mental health issues that could benefit from novel treatments. And, you know, just thinking about these rare conditions, rare neurodegenerative conditions where you have, you know, sure you have people who fill both gaps, having a neurodegenerative issue and mental health issues and are marginalized, that should somehow be the priorities. You know, so given these inequalities, like an access to standard medical care, you know, state and federal representatives have a moral obligation to ensure access to what people need outside of a research setting. It's great to have research settings, but, you know, and, and, and right now the guinea pigs are very expensive. It's mostly wealthy people, as you said, who can afford $5,000 of treatment. The wealthy are the guinea pigs right now, um, and they're paying to be in the research study. But again, there needs to be another focus on, again, how do we get this open to the people who need it most? Um, not just people looking for the next big business creative idea to go on a retreat and spend $20,000 or whatever, but really get this to the communities that help because I think that would just be re- remove a tremendous burden on society to help these people in such a, almost it just seems almost in a simplistic way, access to a medicine and uh, a, a trained or um, you know healthcare professional or other expert to help them with this process. Um, we are starting to run short on HLI time. And, you know, Nigam, I can see, can feel your neurons firing, soaking in this conversation, which has just been amazing. It was, I mean, I was like, it was like watching, you know, Van Gogh paint something, listening to Angela and David talk about this subject. It was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I do have a couple quick ones. Um, so I, I won't, uh, hit on the uh, issues with medical care for minority populations and underserved populations. I think we've hit that pretty strongly already. I wanted to hit two quick ones. One is that they mentioned in the article this concept of community-based pers- participatory research. And I think that that's super important. Oh, uh, what I meant to say before that is to bring it back to the niche of this article they're talking about alzheimer's and neurodegenerative uh, disorders dementias so uh, when you have um, populations experiencing these issues um that's so sensitive like you were saying jayhan it's kind of like compoundingly sensitive uh topics that having this community-based approach and this isn't just for drug treatments. This isn't just for mental health. I think it's really for everything. And it goes back to the prior segment, what I was saying, it all comes back to community. And that applies to um, this niche topic as well. The other thing I wanted to mention, and I don't know if this is uh, controversial in this moment or not, but there is this other uh, hot topic in the psychedelics industry of the non psychedelic psychedelic and multiple companies pursuing this. And I wonder why, we don't just call them, instead of calling it a non-XX, why don't we just call it what it is, a neuroplastogen or a, you know, something uh, on that order. So it does make me think um, that this may be a case that's that's an excellent use case of um, new and upcoming technologies, drugs like that, or maybe even new usages of known drugs. Like, for example, um, I've heard Paul Stamets speak about and give presentations about the neurogenerative uh, properties and the neuroplastic properties of the Stamets stack used appropriately. So there are existing tools or potentially new coming tools that could be applicable to help populations like these in community-based settings that don't require a huge bar to jump over to get there. Um, so, so I think that's something to consider as well. Absolutely. And uh, gosh, I mean, my brain is, is melting a little bit from this, (laughs) uh, there's so much here and we're, unfortunately we're out of HLI time and we're going to have to go. It would be great to have Angela and David back to, for more discussions about this in the future. Um, and I promise not to 
make you play weed pun games again. (laughs) (laughs) I'll Um, try. I just suck at it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. Who would have thought three-way tie? I will have to do a tiebreaker on the next episode. But all right. That brings us to the end of today's episode of How to Launch an Industry. We hope you had fun with our discussion and that it was enlightening and thought-provoking. Um, thank you so much to our talented guest today, Angela David. It was fantastic to have you on your sh- on the show. Um, you you have definitely brightened Nigaman and I's day by being here. And remember, listener, the conversation doesn't end here. Stay engaged. Continue exploring the issues we've discussed. Share your insights with others. Yeah, it's through open dialogue that we can foster understanding and work towards positive change. Um, you know, until we see, until you join us again on another podcast, take care, keep seeking knowledge, explore the uncomfortable, challenge your ego. Don't be afraid to discuss anything. If you made it to the end of this podcast, you could probably do anything. <laughs> Special thanks to our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo. Please check out the custom artwork and links in the show notes for more information about this episode. This is Jehan Marku signing off. <laughs>